If you've been getting our semi-weekly newsletters, you know that I'm in the middle of producing training DVDs with Michael Ellis. The first in the Building, Drive, and Focus series, titled The Power of Training Dogs with Food, will be released in several weeks. Michael gives 40 to 45 seminars a year all over the country. He's been doing it for over 10 years. The next four or five streaming newsletters will feature Michael explaining his training system. This lecture will teach new and old trainers a thing or two about their relationship with their dogs. After you listen to this lecture on dog training, you will understand why I feel lucky to be able to work with Michael Ellis on these DVDs. When I release a new DVD, it'll be announced in the newsletter. So, so this is to keep me in one place at least while I talk now. Uh, thank you for Ed and, everybody, and Cindy and everyone here for having me. Uh, the way we're going to structure it uh, today is I'll talk. Uh, again, it'll be a lecture on uh, sort of my philosophy on dog training, but we're also going to cover uh, pretty intensively the use of markers, or what I call the use of verbal markers in our training, so you have an idea of kind of where we're coming. We have a, a mixed group of people here, uh, some of which train with me very frequently, and some of which are uh, to totally new to me. And what happens with the people that train with me on a regular basis, we tend to just get out there and start training. So what I'll try to do is I'll try to stop and explain to you guys what we're doing, why we're doing it, but it's not perfect. So like Ed said, please follow us around. And if I'm doing something that I'm not explaining fully and you have questions about, fire away. I'm really low-key and casual about the format of it. So you're more than welcome to interrupt and ask questions. And if there's a topic that I wind up not covering that you want covered, please, uh, we can. you guys really direct the direction of the seminar. So, um, so what I'm going to do is I'll jump straight in. I'll give the, my basic lecture. Again, if you have questions along the way, just put up your hand, and when I get a shot to break, I'll break and I'll answer your, your, your questions. Uh, and then we're going to work the dogs in obedience, and then we'll work the dogs in, in protection after that. I'm going to do my protection lecture tomorrow, so I won't stop and talk much before the protection, but what I tend to do is stop after each dog and talk a little bit about what went on with that dog and why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, so the next person up can pause for a second in the protection. It's less important in the obedience, but in the protection, we tend to start going and somebody's off getting their dog. And if you want to hear what's said about the dog before, just hang around, I'll talk, and then you can go. Sometimes people are in a hurry to be prepared. And if you want to hear what's being said to each person, stick around and listen to that after each dog. Uh, it's relatively brief, but I try to kind of encapsulate what we did with that dog as we went along. So, um, what we're doing in terms of, I'm going to give our my little, basically, theory lecture now. Um, what we're doing uh, with the dogs in terms of our communication system is not new. Good, competitive, uh, obedience trainers have been doing some version of this kind of training for 15 or 20 years, probably. It's been really slow to find its way into the protection sports. The protection sport people have stuck to what I will call um, old school ways, and it's probably an incorrect term, but basically uh, the protection world is still filled with more people that are practicing mostly uh, what we call escape avoidance training. Basically pressure-based, compulsion-based training, where the dog is learning to do things but to turn off pressure. So the dog is not working to access a reward, they're working to turn off pressure. And there's still lots 
of trainers in the protection sport world that sort of approach it this way. The competitive obedience world over the last 15 years has changed radically and people have begun to use uh, a lot more operant conditioning type work, right? And that's ultimately what we're doing. The term that I'll use extensively is markers or the use of verbal markers. This is a behaviorally incorrect term. So if you've exposed yourself to any of the operant conditioning literature out there, any of the clicker training stuff, you'll hear the same terms, the, the behavioral terms bant bantied around for this. And those are, you'll hear something called a conditioned reinforcer or a bridge. This is the same thing as a marker. I use the term marker because I like the fact that it connotes that we're marking a moment in time when the dog is either correct or incorrect. And that's ultimately what we're doing. Our system is based on being able to communicate to the dog when they're right and wrong, ultimately, verbally. So the system is based on being able to communicate any one of three things to the dog at any given time. The first of which is when the dog is going to get a reward. So we have a word or a sound that precedes every reward we give our dog. I say yes, but it doesn't make any difference what you say. You can say bang, zip, zowie, whatever you want. This is where clicker trainers would use a clicker. So, the important part here is that it precedes the reward that I give my dog. So this is a concept that I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about. It's a really simple concept, but it's going to drive people nuts because it's very simple, but it's not easy to do. What winds up happening is there's a concept, and most people have probably been exposed to this during uh, usually high school psychology. There's a Russian psychologist. Ivan Pavlov, uh, he was doing experiments in a lab with dogs on salivary responses. And he found that the presence of the researchers in the lab had an effect on the dog in his, in his experiments. So he set up automated feeders in the, so, the, um, so the technicians didn't have to be in the room with the dogs when they were getting fed. And so he had a tone or a bell that would go off before the food dropped into the automated feeders for the dog. And over a number of repetitions, he noticed that when the tone would go off, the dogs would start to salivate. The dogs would actually have a physical response to what was previously a meaningless stimuli to the dog. So the bell or the tone meant nothing to the dog, but by predicting food, the dog actually started to have a response, a physical response to the sound. And he called this classical conditioning. And classical conditioning is what we're going to do with our reward sound, our reward marker. We're going to classically condition this, this sound to mean a reward's coming. The interesting thing that Pavlov noted was that if, the, if he sounded the tone at the same time the food dropped, or if he sounded the tone while the dog was eating, there was no classical conditioning. And it's the same with our reward marker. If I'm saying yes and giving my dog the food at the same time, or saying yes while my dog's eating the food, my dog will not become classically conditioned to that sound. So it has to precede the, the production of the reward by a split second. So I need to go, yes, reward, yes, reward, yes, reward. So it needs to follow right after. Really simple, it's a pain in the neck. <laughs> your mouth and your body want to go at the same time. So this, yes, feels natural, yes, does not feel natural. So you're going to have to condition yourself to do that. Once your dog's conditioned to this sound, it's an incredibly powerful tool, right? The dog knows that whatever they're doing when they heard that sound is what they're getting rewarded for. So at the point that they're conditioned to the sound, I no longer have to get the reward to the dog immediately on completion of the action. I just have to mark it with my voice. 
So if my dog's across the field and I tell my dog to down and he lays down and I say yes, he's going to jump up, come tearing across the field, I'm going to reach in my pocket, I'm going to give him a piece of food. And now that reward might have come several seconds after the act of downing. But he knows that whatever he was doing when he heard that sound is what he's getting rewarded for, which is very powerful. Now I don't have to be there when I'm training without the use of markers. What we try to do is we try to get the reward to the dog as close to the completion of the behavior that we're trying to capture as possible. So if I'm trying to teach my dog to sit and I'm not using a marker, as soon as his butt hits the ground, I'm trying to get him a piece of food. And they've done further learning studies and they know that dogs learn best if I'm not using a reward marker uh, or a bridge. If they learn best, if they get the reward in under a second of the completion of the behavior we're trying to capture. I don't care how good you are, you are not consistently getting rewards to your dog in under a second. It's not going to happen. You might do it occasionally, but you are not consistent on a consistent basis getting rewards to your dog in under a second. So once my dog's conditioned to this sound, I simply have to mark the behavior with my voice in under a second. So that's incredibly liberating. It allows us to pinpoint the, the moment the dog was correct and the reward can follow after, which is powerful. The other powerful part about it is it allows us to have the rewards out of sight. So one of the trickiest things that we have in dog training is we start out, if we're, if we're using reward-based training, we start out teaching the dog to work to get a reward, and the reward is there driving it, and then getting the reward out of the picture and still having the dog perform is one of the trickier things we do. And we want the dog to know that the dog goes through us to get to a reward that they don't see. And the use of markers, a reward marker, greatly facilitates this. This makes this much, much easier. So. You're going to hear me talk over the course of the weekend about what I call the active versus reactive dog. In clicker circles, you'll hear people call the active dog an operant dog, but we're talking about the same thing. The active dog is a dog that understands that their behavior has an effect on their environment, and I'm an integral piece of that environment, meaning their behavior can make things happen for them. And we've all seen this. You take a puppy home, you use some food to show your puppy to sit and lay down and speak and come when they're called. And a few things, you're messing around in the kitchen or the living room, you're showing your dog how to do some things. So you ask your puppy to sit, your puppy sits, you don't give it a reward immediately, so it downs. It sits again, hits you with its foot, right? It backs up, it barks at you. The puppy's cycling through, ever. the dog's cycling through everything that it knows that's got it a reward in the past. So that dog has made the connection that its behavior is what makes the reward come out. And it's actively trying to figure out what it needs to do to make me give it a reward. And we like this because that dog is much easier to teach new things to. That dog is trying to figure out what aspect of their behavior made the reward happen. So when they make the connection, it's a very strong connection in the dog's head. The dog says, ah, I did that by doing this. So that makes that behavior that much stronger. We've all seen the reactive dog as well. And the reactive dog is a dog whose behavior is being driven by the reward. Their behavior is not driving the production of the reward. And this sounds like, a, sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but it's a really important concept. The reactive dog's behavior is being driven by the reward itself. Their behavior is not driving the production of the reward. So we've all seen this as well. Somebody comes out on the field with a dog. The dog's not paying any attention to them. Like, oh, what's over there? What's over there? They take out a ball, wave the ball in the dog's face, tuck the ball under their arm, off they go healing, and the dog heals beautifully. You look at the person, you go, wow, that looks really pretty. That dog's doing nice healing. But the dog's behavior is being driven by the reward. He didn't drive the production of the reward. 
And there's every single dog starts out as a reactive dog. There's no reason for a dog to pay attention to us unless we set up the circumstances that make it productive for the dog, that make it rewarding for the dog. And a marker simply makes that easier. So I bring a puppy home, I condition my puppy to their reward marker, yes feed, yes feed, yes feed, yes feed, a hundred times, until every time I say yes, my puppy goes, hey, where's the food? Now he's conditioned to the sound, and then I put food, I hide food on my body, and every time I take the puppy out, I go, pop up, he looks at me, I say yes, and out comes a piece of food. So he didn't see the food, but his attention on me made it come out. If I do that 10 days in a row, on the 11th day I step out, I let my puppy out, he runs over to me and he sits there and looks at me and goes, come on, last 10 days in a row you've had food on you so you must have it now. And he offers a behavior. He looks at me and goes, come on, you got something for me? And I say, yes, I do. <laughs> and I give him the food, right? Now the puppy starts to work me to make something that he doesn't see come out. So our reward marker really facilitates that transfer from a reactive to an active dog. So we like that. The other thing it allows us to do, and competitive obedience has become more and more detail-oriented. You'll find it's, it's really easy to go out, go out and grab uh, world championship level Schutzend tapes from 15 years ago and watch the obedience. And then watch the obedience at this year's world championships. It's a totally different animal. Like, it's evolved. The level of animation and precision and everything changes from year to year. So we're talking about really fine details separating the okay dogs from the very good dogs at, at these competitions. And markers really allow us to pinpoint very tiny aspects of a dog's behavior. So let's take a, a, a dog looking at us, focusing on us in heel position. And let's say I want to teach my dog in heel position to look at my face. And I've taught my dog a cue, watch, and they look at my face when they're in heel position. If I'm not using a marker, I'm standing here, I ask my dog to look, my dog looks up at me, I see what I want, I'm excited about this, so I go to give the dog a reward. If I do that a couple of times, as soon as I start to move to give the dog a reward, the dog says, ah, I'm getting rewarded. What does it do? It looks away from me to the reward, and when it actually gets the reward, it got the reward for the exact opposite of looking at me, he got the reward for looking away from me. So that just that split second difference in timing means I'm rewarding a completely different behavior. And over time that dog starts to hold his head lower and lower and lower until it's not looking at me anymore, up at me, it's looking out here where it thinks the reward's gonna come out. So, and if I have a marker, of course, if I'm using a marker, my dog's conditioned to a reward marker, the dog looks at me, I see it, I say yes, and then the reward comes out afterwards. And the dog knows that whatever it was doing when it heard that sound is what it gets rewarded for, so I can pinpoint very, very fine aspects of behavior. We're going to end this part of the lecture here. Our next newsletters will be a continuation of this lecture from Michael Ellis. If you'd like to watch some of the free streaming videos that I have on my website, you can go to this web address now. I have a number of uh, free streaming training videos and then a number of product videos also.